You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159, by Rudolf Steiner, 15 lectures, entitled The Mystery of Death, The Nature and Significance of Central Europe and the European Folk Spirits, translated by Simon Blacksland Delang. This is Lecture 2, given in Hanover on the 19th of February, 1915, entitled The Passing of a Human Being Through the Gate of Death, A Transformation of Life. It is a time when man's connection with the spiritual world, that world which he enters when he crosses the threshold of death, comes to our awareness with great frequency through the many deaths occurring on a daily basis. Moreover, this rapid succession of almost simultaneous deaths is occurring under quite particular circumstances. This is because many earthly human beings are passing through the gate of death who under the conditions that ordinarily apply to human individuals would otherwise be able to live on this earth for several decades. And whenever people die prematurely, this also gives rise to circumstances of an extraordinary nature. We know that when a person passes through the gate of death, he leaves behind, gives over to the earthly element, what falls away from him in the form of his physical body. We know that the so-called etheric body is the second element to be considered but that this too separates from the individuality composed of the astral body and ego, which passes through the spiritual realms between death and a new birth, that this etheric body continues to work further, separated from the ego and astral body. As it enters the spiritual world immediately adjoining our own, a world that we have often referred to as the etheric world, This etheric body can be thought of as manifesting itself differently in the case of someone who passes prematurely through the gate of death from the way it does with someone who has lived to a ripe old age. For an etheric body which has to pass through the gate of death where someone has died prematurely would under normal circumstances have had the strength to imbue the physical body with life for many years and even several decades. Now in the spiritual world, energies are lost just as little as they are in the physical world. This strength that otherwise imbues the physical body with life continues to exist. So we can say, if thousands are now passing through the gate of death virtually every day, etheric bodies are entering the elemental world, which are still viable, which have within them different forces from etheric bodies that have become older. What happens now with these still viable etheric bodies? Yesterday in the public lecture I spoke of the folk soul who is an actual being. In our time it needs quite particular forces. It needs such forces also at other times, of course, but quite especially in our time. This folk soul still receives these viable, etheric bodies. The human being himself pursues different paths through his ego and astral body, those paths which will then prepare him for his next earthly life. 
But these etheric bodies separate from the human individualities. They pass over into the essential nature, the substance of the folk souls. Thus, after such a destiny-laden time as we are now living through, we are approaching a time when the folk soul has within it, as living forces residing in it, the etheric bodies that have been made available to it by those who have crossed the threshold of death in battle. Thus a time is drawing near when the spiritual scientist can know that what has been sacrificed by way of etheric bodies on the altar of the great events of the time has not been lost. A time is drawing near when from the folk soul an effective force streams forth into the individual souls from whom at the same time proceeds what numerous human beings have received here on earth in the first, second and third decades of their youth what they would otherwise have been able to retain for many decades, but have given over to the folk soul. This will in future be in the forces that the folk soul infuses into individual souls, and it has not been lost. Let us take this rightly into our hearts. Let us think how our awareness of the connection with the spiritual world can be enlivened in our hearts when we record the fact that one will in future be able to speak of the folk soul in such a way that the fruits of sacrificial deaths reside within it as effective forces. This will be particularly important in the near future. At other times it would be different, but for the near future it will be significant for a quite particular reason. We have been living in a dire period of materialism. Souls that have not been able to approach spiritual science have, as it were, been plunged into a strong aura of materialism. It will, in the coming times, be the task of the folk soul to combat this aura. Forces for combating materialism will flow to this folk soul through the fact that the etheric bodies of those who have died prematurely live on in this folk soul, thus making such forces available. These etheric bodies, sacrificed on the altar of human evolution, will be the most powerful adversaries of materialism. Thus we must distinguish between what passes as an individual human being through the expanses of the spiritual world and remains united with the human individuality and what is channeled through the etheric body to the universal whole. What, in the sense referred to here, works further in the spiritual totality in the substance of the folk spirits? This can make a particularly deep impression on our feeling life if we consider two types of human beings with regard to this spiritual difference. The soldier, fallen in battle, who goes through the gate of death, devoted to the task of his people, who at the moment when he enters the field of battle, when he merely makes the resolve to do so, must in a certain sense also be deciding to look death in the eye and in comparison the ascetic, one gains some idea of the difference between the soldier who has fallen in battle and the ascetic if one considers what the forces of the etheric body signify in human life. The ascetic works upon himself. He tries to work upon himself in such a way that he completely overcomes his physical nature as such, that he becomes free from this physicality even during his lifetime. Because of the work that the ascetic does in this regard, 
a significant transformation also takes place in his etheric body. One could say that he uses the forces of this etheric body in the strongest way in order to incorporate it in his ego and his astral body. What makes the ascetic free from his physicality stands the individuality in good stead. It serves the transformation of the individuality. Thus a person who becomes an ascetic can only serve humanity by way of what he makes of himself. However, someone who makes himself free from the physical body in early youth by giving himself up to military demands gives the forces of his etheric body over to the general whole. He incorporates it in influences of a universal nature. One must feel this difference. It is a significant difference. It points us in some small degree toward what holds sway as a reality in human life. And it is, moreover, also significant to look retrospectively at what the etheric body is, at the passage to the gate of death. In the moment when someone crosses the threshold of death, he is still united with his etheric body. We have often described what happens with it. This state of union with the etheric body gives a person the possibility of living so rightly in all the mental images which the life that is past has kindled within him as wholly to be absorbed as in a mighty tableau in all that this last life has given him. But this is a vision that lasts a relatively short time and fades with the separation of the etheric body from the ego and astral body. One can indeed say that the fading process begins immediately after the moment of death, a tendency for the impressions that derive from the possession of an etheric body to become ever weaker, and there then makes itself felt what is of particular importance after physical death. Those who want to form ideas about life after death will only to a very small degree gain a right conception of this. It is even difficult to find words for those conditions which are so different in nature from those experienced in the physical body. People readily believe that once someone has passed through the gate of death he would first have to acquire a consciousness again, but this is not so. What he experiences when he crosses the threshold of death is not a lack of consciousness. With death it turns out that there is not a lack of consciousness, but the exact opposite. There is a too-muchness, an overabundance of consciousness when death comes about. One lives and weaves wholly within consciousness. And just as strong sunlight causes the eyes to shield themselves, so is one initially numbed by consciousness. One has too much of it. This consciousness must be dampened down in order that one can orient oneself in the life that one has embarked upon after death. This lasts for quite some time, in that it gradually happens that after death there are more and more moments when consciousness makes such an orientation possible, that the soul comes to itself for a short time and then enters into a kind of sleep-like state, as one might describe it. Such moments then become ever longer, the soul increasingly becomes accustomed to such conditions until there is a complete orientation in the spiritual world. This also causes difficulties in forming clear ideas of the way that the person who has passed 
through the gate of death, perceives his surroundings. In the last few weeks we have cremated a dear anthroposophical friend, and it was the wish of the person who has now died that I took on the task of celebrating a committal festival at the place where she died for her assembled friends. In the time when I was speaking and my words had been directed to the dead person, she was as though sleeping. Then the heat took effect, the flames, as it were, took hold of the body. And at this instant a moment of consciousness came over the soul, as a moment of orientation. And the dead person then had the whole picture of what the funeral and the funeral address consisted of before her, as one has something of a spatial nature simultaneously before one. Time indeed becomes space. One sees the past not as in life, one sees the past elapsing in time, but one sees what is past before one as a spatial phenomenon. So, that what had already run its course had happened, say, a quarter of an hour before, then stood before the soul of the deceased person as a first moment of enlightenment of her consciousness. Then again a state of stupefaction came to pervade the flooding light of consciousness. In order in this state to reach toward those other states in which the soul gradually learns to orient itself in the spiritual world. It is important, if we want to form good conceptions about the life after death, that we keep these wholly different ideas of time in mind, that we see that time there is not something of which one can say that it has elapsed and one recalls the things that happened in time, but what has elapsed is there before one just as the table stands there. And this table does not go with me when I go and look back at it. So after death does what has happened, what can only be remembered, stand there. And the dead person looks back at it as in the body one looks back at spatial objects. It is very important to bear this in mind. Something further of quite particular importance that needs to be considered is that we remain in connection our earthly life retains a connection with what we afterward experience between death and the new birth. At any rate, it remains in close connection until the point of time that is referred to in the last mystery play as the midnight hour. It would be remiss of me not gradually to give our friends some idea of these conditions which are difficult to describe. The soul that has crossed the threshold of death looks upon what we as earthly human beings have experienced between birth and death, but not as if what one experienced then were simply there, but much of the state of being of the dead person also exerts an influence in a particular way. The state of being of a dead person is not like that of someone living between birth and death. The state of being of someone living between birth and death is such that he feels himself enclosed within his skin and looks out at the world through his senses. As soon as one enters the spiritual world as a dead person, one flows out into the whole of the spiritual world. One gradually feels oneself filling the whole spiritual world. And what one has experienced during physical earth existence, one senses to be something that continues to belong to one not, of course, as a physical body, 
but as what constitutes the form, the forces of the physical body. This one retains after death. But in such a way as the human eye, E-Y-E, inhabits the physical body, just as one has the eye for seeing, so does one have oneself, the earthly life that one has lived through, as a cosmic sense organ in order to perceive the world. What our eye is now for our body, our earthly life is for our spiritual life after death. Our earthly life is used as an eye, a sense organ. You will, through lengthy meditation, gradually come to realize how significant it is to say that our earthly life becomes a sense organ for our life between death and a new birth. When a person's ego and astral body leave his physical and etheric bodies as he goes to sleep, a similar situation also pertains. When initiation occurs and he is enabled to behold the spiritual world outside his physical and etheric body, he knows in the spiritual world you perceive as through a sense organ with the spiritual part of your physical body. And you think in the spiritual world with your etheric body. Your etheric body is actually like your brain in the spiritual world and your former physical body is a sense organ. But you yourself are, with all your life forces, spread out over the spiritual worlds. You have spread yourself out. You do not feel yourself to be concentrated by your skin in one place. You feel yourself poured forth, spread out over the spiritual world. It is an entirely different existence, and to it belongs the fact that someone who himself enters the spiritual world whether through death or through initiation, lives in a state of union with the other beings of the spiritual world, with beings of higher hierarchies or with human souls who are living between death and a new birth, in such a way that he does not experience them as one outwardly meets earthly human beings, where one is spatially separated from them. Rather, does he experience them as being with him in a common spirit realm, in a state of mutual interpenetration, what another soul experiences, one learns about not through this soul saying something to one, as with earthly human beings, but through one's living into the other soul and experiencing its thoughts as it experiences them. Hence, it is also the case that one can only be sure of really experiencing what, for example, a dead person is experiencing when one knows that one is, so to speak, within the one who has died. One is not merely giving an account of something that one apprehends from the model of something or other that one experiences on the earth, but one is aware. The dead person himself is speaking through your being. I should also like to explain this by means of an example. One of our members recently died. Already before the cremation, there was felt to be the need to apprehend what this personality had to say after death. This came about through the links that she formed with her etheric body and her capacity to express herself in, as it were, an earthly form through her etheric body, while nevertheless everything was brought together that had been interwoven with her soul through an intensive experiencing of the anthroposophical conception of the world. Thus we have to do with a personality who had reached a good old age and who in the last part of her life had been committed really intensively and with all the forces of her heart 
to our spiritual scientific view of the world. Then she passed through the gate of death. She therefore still had her etheric body. It was still before the cremation, and the etheric body was still there as a means of expression. This gave the possibility that she could still express herself through earthly words, because the etheric body was able to have an after-experience of them. And this liberation from the body, from earth existence, at the same time, gave the possibility of bringing together the whole being which, through the heart, had been engraved in the soul. And as I was shown how this personality who had passed through the gate of death wanted to express her being, approximately on the second day after her death had occurred, the words were formed that I can impart to you, words that are to be seen as words experienced by the deceased person. So that one has to imagine that here, on the second day after the death, this being of the soul that had passed through the gate of death was filled with the power of these words. And if one put oneself in the place of the soul, this being of the dead person expressed itself through one of these words. Hence I could do no better than to address these words to the dead person at the funeral, for these were the words that she herself, so to speak, spoke to the friends that stood around her earthly remains. I can give you the assurance that I have added nothing to these words, but I have tried to regard them as coming from the being of the deceased. To be sure, later there ensues what I have called the numbing or stupefying of consciousness, which one could call a state of sleep. The dead person would now not have been able to bring this being of hers to expression, because she now lacks the means of the etheric body. She will be able to do so after some time, but not immediately after death. These are the words, quote, In world expanses I will to bear my feeling heart, that warm it may become in the fire of the working of holy forces. In world thoughts I will to weave my own thinking, that clear it may become in the light of the eternal life in becoming. In soul foundations I will to immerse the sense of what has been, that strong it may become for true aims of human working. In God's peace I so aspire midst life's struggles and concerns, myself for the higher self preparing. Striving for peace in joyous work, sensing world being in my own being, I would fulfill man's highest duty. May I live expectantly in the light of my destiny star that grants me the place in the realm of spirit. This is, as it were, the result of many years' absorption in the worldview of spiritual science. This long absorption in the spiritual scientific world conception has become the essential nature of the soul itself and has expressed itself in this way. It is a clear, vivid example of how the forces of the soul are really taken hold of when one does not merely take up spiritual science in a theoretical way, but transforms it into life forces within the soul. Then the feelings and sensations that come from the spiritual scientific world conception go beyond something of a theoretical nature and themselves become forces within the soul. 
then one can be quite certain that no one who has not become acquainted with the world conception of spiritual science would bring his own being to expression after death in words such as these, quote, In world expanses I will to bear my feeling heart that warm it may become in the fire of the working of holy forces. In world thoughts I will to weave my own thinking that clear it may become in the light of the eternal life in becoming. I should like to place this before your souls as a clear example of the mysterious course that the human soul takes through the point of time that separates life between birth and death from the life between death and a new birth, where in a sense everything that was for us in earthly life, still an outward experience, becomes an inner richness of the soul and thus lives within us. Here one still receives spiritual science as something of an outward nature. Directly after death, however, it manifests itself in the soul in the way that, say, the strength of a muscle now lives in our physical body. One must have some feeling of this if one is wanting rightly to grasp the inner meaning, the inner significance of what spiritual science can be for the human soul. One will then gradually, and for this one needs to have patience, form for oneself a concept of the wholly different circumstances that pertain in the spiritual world. Whereas we formulate words and concepts for the circumstances that exist in the sense world, we can at best give symbols for what is in the spiritual world. One must patiently work toward developing concepts and feelings that to some extent, rightly and truly, express the circumstances prevailing in the world of spirit. The logic of earthly life, and indeed it is only a logic of earthly life, is even for earthly life sometimes thoroughly unreliable. I have already spoken here of how with the logic of earthly life one can miss, fail to recognize real facts. I have often given the following example. Suppose that someone is walking beside a river. We see that he falls into it. We hurry up and discover that he is already dead. We see a stone at the place where the person fell into the river and can now form a perfectly logical but nevertheless superficial judgment. We can say he stumbled over the stone, fell into the river and drowned. Drowning was the cause of his death. But this may be completely wrong. If one investigates the matter purely anatomically, it may turn out that the person had a heart attack and fell into the water as as a result of that. The heart attack would then be the cause of his death. With ordinary correct logic we arrive at the opposite conclusion. Such conclusions, this should be observed merely in passing, are continually drawn in human life and especially in science. Science is full of such conclusions where cause and effect are confused. But all this becomes important when questions of human destiny are concerned. In the autumn we experienced a blow of fate in Dornach, which is instructive in the most significant sense. The little seven-year-old son of one of our members, Theo Feiss, who was a very lovable, wide-awake child, went missing one evening. It was on an evening when there was a lecture. The mother went looking for the child, but he was not to be found. It was first heard that the mother was searching for the boy when the lecture was over, 
and the only thing that people could think was that the boy's death was connected with the accident of a furniture van. A member of our society had dispatched her furniture in a van, and in the evening this van had overturned on the spot where it was found. It was 10.15 p.m., and we made every possible effort to lift the van. Members of the military services came to help us lift this van. And when this was done, the boy was found, crushed underneath it. Now, imagine, there has never been a furniture van in this area before, and there have been none since. All possible investigations enabled one to establish that the boy had been at the very spot. It must have been a question of minutes or even a single moment when the van overturned. It was at any rate remarkable that those who were at the place where the van had overturned had initially only thought of the safety of the horses. No one had any idea that the furniture van had fallen on the little boy. So the child was dead. According to the outward materialistic view, it was pretty by chance that the van had overturned at this moment when the child came by and was crushed. This is what the materialistic view will say. From the spiritual perspective, this is complete nonsense. For what is of concern here is the karma of the child, and this karma of the child guided all the various circumstances. It had guided the furniture van there at the moment when the child needed to die, because the child's karma wished it so. The karma of the child had run its course. We have here to do with the need to reverse cause and effect. Through such circumstances and their perception, one can gradually find one's way to a real conception of life that brings us to the point of reversing what outer appearances present to us. We must do this many times over. But the situation becomes especially significant if afterward there is an experience of what arises from such a circumstance. The soul of a human being passes through the gate of death. This soul had incarnated for seven years in a physical body. Why would little tail not have been able to live for seventy, eighty, or ninety years, when viewed outwardly, if karma had not made it impossible? He had an etheric body that could have supported life for decades, an etheric body that was indeed full of forces of the eternal, of the good. He was a boy with outstanding qualities. As you know, the actual individuality, the ego and astral body, continues on its own path. But the etheric body separates out. This etheric body into which are woven all the beautiful, tender forces that have developed in the age of childhood, but in which also live all the forces that come from former incarnations. Now consider what one has before one with such an etheric body. The individuality comes from former incarnations. It embodies itself in this incarnation. It brings with it what comes from former incarnations. The life in this incarnation is in a certain sense the fruit, the realization of what resided as a cause in former incarnations. These fruits would then have been able to come to fulfillment throughout the present life. Everything that derives from the fruits of former incarnations would then have passed into this etheric body. This did not happen. Thus, in this etheric body, everything that exists by way of causes in the former incarnations finds its place. And what is most remarkable is this. Anyone who tries to investigate the aura 
of our building in Dornach will find this etheric body of little tail in the aura of this building. It is there. It hovers around and surrounds the building in Dornach with its life. Anyone who has something to do with the building, or will have something to do with it, since that late autumnal afternoon when little Theo crossed the threshold of death, knows what was changed in the spiritual aura of the Dornach building. Because in this aura there has been assimilated that etheric body which contains the forces that would otherwise have been used for the sustenance of a physical human body for several decades. And this etheric body has flowed forth into this aura of the building. So mysterious are the paths that the wisdom flowing through the world has to traverse with its creatures. The only right conceptions of the way that human life as a whole takes its course, and this eminently includes the life between death and a new birth, are those that enter into the details of these things. And since our anthroposophical movement should not be abstract in any way, but should be something in which we, and also those that belong to us, are involved with our whole being, it may also be possible to speak about such things. Unlike other societies, we do not ally ourselves only with a particular program, but we want to be engaged in our spiritual scientific movement with our entire soul. We want to think of this spiritual scientific movement as an actual stream to which each person belongs who really adheres to it with all his feelings. Thus we can say that we speak as one speaks here and there in an extended family about those belonging to it, for what touches us in a familiarly intimate way at the same time gives us the highest, most significant, and for us the most important information about the spiritual world. Out of such a mood I should like to mention another of the many deaths of our friends that have occurred in recent times, Fritz Mitscher, who was an infinitely dear friend of all of us, passed through the gate of death not long ago, and it turned out that the necessity arose for me to formulate in words what my own soul felt as it inclined toward the soul that had just crossed the threshold of death. Notice the difference between the previous words that I read out to you and the words that I now want to recite. The words that I have just read to you derived from the soul of the deceased person. The words that I shall now share with you were stirred within my own soul on beholding in a soul sense, the dead person, Fritz Mitscher, still united with his etheric body. It is therefore the impression that the dead person made which is now communicated in these words. You may perhaps know that Fritz Mitscher was already active on behalf of our Anthroposophical Society as a young teacher in many different places, especially in Berlin. And many of us also know how it was in so beautiful a way his will to connect what he had been able to acquire of knowledge and learning of the earth with the noblest and most exemplary anthroposophical awareness. This expresses itself also after death, when in his entire being there is united what he was and what now radiates after death from his soul in its body-free state, but still united with its etheric body. And it seems to me that what Fritz Mitscher was after death had to be expressed with the words that I felt obliged to send to him at the cremation. As a hope that gladdens us, 
so do you venture upon the field where spirit blossoms of the earth would, through the power of soul-being, manifest themselves to the questing spirit. Your longing had its deep affinity with a pure love of truth. The goal to which you tirelessly aspired throughout your life was creation from the spirit light. You cultivated your fine gifts to follow with sure step the radiant path of spirit knowledge, unswayed by outward opposition as a true servant of the truth. Your spirit organs you enhanced that they boldly and persistently thrust error from you to both sides of the path and create for you a realm of truth to fashion yourself that it reveal the purity of light, that the sun-power of the soul might radiate its strength within you was your concern and joy. Other cares, other joys, they barely touched your soul, for knowledge as the light that to existence meaning gives held for you life's truest worth. As a hope that gladdens us, so do you venture upon the field where spirit blossoms of the earth would, through the power of soul-being, manifest themselves to the questing spirit. A loss that deeply us aggrieves, so do you vanish from the field where earthly seeds of spirit have matured for your senses' spheres in the womb of soul-being. Feel how we look lovingly up to the heights that called you now, away for other creating. Extend your strength from realms of spirit to the friends you've left behind. Hear the entreaty of our souls sent to you in confidence. We need here for earthly work strong power from spirit lands, which to our dead friends we owe. As a hope that gladdens us, a loss that deeply us aggrieves, let us hope that from far and near, unforsaken for our life, you shine as starry soul in spirit realms. Close quote. These are the words that were sent from the one who had died to the being of this deceased person. And then some time passed after these words were spoken at the cremation, and from the being of the person who had died, sounding forth not as yet from a well-ordered consciousness, but as from his essential nature, the following words could be heard, words that, therefore, now resounded from the one who had died in the night following the cremation. Quote, to fashion myself that it reveal the purity of light, that the sun-power of the soul might radiate its strength within me was my concern and joy. Other cares, other joys, they barely touched my soul. For knowledge, as the light that to existence meaning gives, held for me life's truest worth. Thus did the words resound. I had afterward discovered that the two verses had been directly transmuted from you to your to me or my. I had not been aware of this before, for I had heard the verses as I first read them to you, and now they came back from the being of the person who had died, spoken by him. Quote, to fashion myself that it reveal the purity of light, that the sun-power of the soul might radiate its strength within me, was my concern and joy. Mother cares, other joys, they barely touched my soul. For knowledge, as the light 
that to existence meaning gives, held for me life's truest worth. This shows that also, at the time when consciousness does not yet have the form that it has after this time, from the soul throughout the period between death and the new birth, the words that are addressed to the dead person come livingly and meaningfully transformed. One must merely feel the extent to which the spiritual scientific world conception becomes truly alive in forming connections between the physical and spiritual worlds. For a sense of consternation may well pass through our soul if we feel through such an example that the words are addressed to the dead person and he repeats them back to us unchanged. But our feeling is that, on the one hand, they have reached the dead person because they have resounded back from him, though not as an echo, but changed in a meaningful way. These are things that give us the assurance, the confidence also for our present time, that the souls that live here in earthly bodies have a connection with the spiritual powers working and weaving through the world, and that the earthly souls of human beings that have passed through death are interwoven with this stream of spiritual powers, wherein they experience their further destiny after they have died. If we allow the connection of the physical world with the spiritual world rightly to exert its influence upon our hearts and minds, we can indeed extend our consideration to other things. I have on a previous occasion indicated also here that in this interaction, this quite specific interplay between the physical and spiritual worlds, we find ourselves drawn quite especially toward the impulse of the mystery of Golgotha. We well know that it is only really now that we are through spiritual science beginning fully to take into account the meaning and significance of the mystery of Golgotha and of the Christ being. Hitherto people have done this, and rightly, with their reasoning powers. And what has emerged from this? Well, if the influence of Christ in the earthly life of human beings had been dependent upon what they have understood of it, the influence of the Christ impulse on earth can hardly be very great. Theological quarreling and all manner of arguments have characterized people's understanding of Christianity. But Christ has worked out of a living power. I have also previously referred here to the example of the battle that Constantine waged against Maxentius, through which the destiny of Europe at that time was decided. With this, Christianity was first really recognized and then became the ruling power in Europe. This battle was not won through military tactics or through the armies of Constantine. Maxentius had Rome to defend. Through consulting the books of the Sibyls, and through a dream that he had had, he had been led to believe that his army, which was five times stronger than that of Constantine, who was marching against Rome, was to be led by him out of Rome. He would then annihilate Rome's enemies. He indeed led his army out of Rome, strategically the most inept thing that he could have done. For, from a strategical point of view, everything was in favor of leaving his army in Rome and letting the enemy armies approach, but he led his army out of Rome. As for Constantine, who was leading his armies against Rome, what gave him his power was not technical skill of a military nature, but rather a dream that he had had. The dream's message was, If you let Christ's monogram go at the head of our army, 
you will conquer Rome. As a result of Constantine's victory with his weak army, the whole map of Europe was transformed at that time and for future times. The cultural life of Europe thereby also became different. What people in those days were able to fathom of all this would not have sufficed to accomplish what was achieved. The Christ impulse was working into the subconscious regions of human beings, into what lived in the depths of people's souls, of which they could only dream in the dream pictures that sprang up before them. We have a later and highly significant example of the influence of the Christ impulse in the Maid of Orleans. Anyone who really studies history, that is, not in the way that history is often studied today, but through trying to recognize the actual connections, can know that, again, through what the Maid of Orleans did, the destiny of Europe was defined in an absolute sense for the next few centuries. For what was decisive for this destiny of Europe, and especially that of France, was not military strategy or the wisdom of politicians, but the deeds of the shepherdess of Orleans, in whom the Christ impulse was working through his representative Michael. Her soul was wholly imbued with and inspired by the Christ impulse. Just as the Christ impulse was an active force when the battle between Constantine and Maxentius was decided, without people being consciously aware of this, so was the Christ impulse also a contributory factor when the Maid of Orleans sent the French armies to meet the English armies. The whole continent of Europe, including England, would have taken a different course if France had not been victorious then. England, too, would not have been what it became if it had not been defeated. But, as said, what brought the victory about were the subconscious forces that manifested themselves in visions, and the abilities of the Maid of Orleans were inspired by them. Thus one can say, what the Maid of Orleans did stands under the influence of an initiation that was more or less unconscious, a pure soul vessel, such as the Maid of Orleans was, through which the Christ impulse could work through his Michaelic representative, had to be unconsciously taken hold of and encompassed. Let us look more closely at what is involved here. When someone today consciously undergoes an initiation, there are rules for this. The rudiments of this are explained in my book title, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? There are rules through which one can gradually make progress in this respect. The initiation of the Maid of Orleans could not, of course, have been of this kind. But a spirit not otherwise united with the human soul must have taken up its abode in this human soul and pervaded it. For this to happen, there would have to have been particularly favorable circumstances. It is not always that a spirit of higher spheres can exert such an influence upon souls that have the capacity for this. Particularly favorable circumstances must be in place in order that an individual human soul may, without initiation, without special work, come into connection with higher worlds. Such circumstances are present in the time when the spirit of the earth wakes up, as it were, in the time from 25 December until 6 January, when, in summer, the sun is at its highest, when the physical warmth of the earth rays out to the greatest extent, 
the conditions for initiation are most unfavorable, because then the spirit of the earth is asleep. The spirit of the earth is most wakeful in the darkness of winter, at the winter solstice. Hence it is no mere legend, but corresponds to a truth, when it is related in old legends that in the thirteen nights preceding the 6th of January, certain especially suitable souls were initiated, so that they were able to enter the spiritual world, so that they were able to experience there what we call Kamaloka and Devakan. We may well recall the recitation here in Hanover of the legend of Olaf Astason, who in the thirteen nights traversed in sleep the whole path that can constitute the path through Kamaloka and Devakan. Olaf Astason then relates what he has experienced in these thirteen days. When, therefore, outward physical earthly darkness is at its strongest, the circumstances are most favorable for leading a soul into the spiritual world. For souls that are initiated, not through directly conscious work, but through particularly favorable circumstances, for a deed on behalf of humanity as a whole, such as the maid of Orleans accomplished, it would therefore have been most favorable if she could have been able to sleep in the thirteen nights, and moreover, in connection with the spiritual worlds. Thus, if she could have undergone all this in a kind of sleeping condition. Now, it is indeed so, that the maid of Orleans passed through such a state of sleep. This was because the maid of Orleans spent these thirteen days until 6 January in her mother's body, in a state where a person is still asleep. For a human individual only awakes to physical life when he has been born and takes his first breath. In the maid of Orleans' case, the last nights of sleep during the embryonic state fell in the time of the thirteen nights, for she was born on 6 January. Here you have the foundation of the mission of the Maid of Orleans, to whom it was given, as this pure soul before her first breath, in the last thirteen nights of her mother's pregnancy, to receive initiation in this state of sleep, in the particularly favorable circumstances of earthly life. The calendar makes this perfectly plain, for if you open up a calendar, you will find that on 6 January, the maid of Orleans has her birthday. Thus the calendar shows that a deeply inward connection exists between the physical and spiritual worlds. It was, of course, necessary for the soul of the maid of Orleans to be prepared through its previous incarnations. But as in the thirteen nights the soul met with what was able to come through it, what ensued historically occurred in order at this point in the evolution of mankind to make the intervention of the spiritual world into the physical world possible. Thus the spiritual world is always there with all its various aspects. The spiritual world is always among us, and the ways that the spiritual world seeks out in order to exert an influence in the physical world are many and various in nature. Our awareness of the connection with the spiritual world becomes ever stronger the more in such instances we find expression with a particular depth to the connections between the physical and spiritual world, in that such connections remain livingly in our soul. On the other hand, one must say that what happens here in the physical world 
can also serve as preparation for the nature of the connection between the spiritual and physical worlds. And if someone who has taken up as intensively as Fritz Mitcher what flows through our spiritual science, and in the thirtieth year of his life passes into the spiritual world, his thirtieth birthday would have been on 26 February, and has impregnated his soul with the power that can pervade it through our spiritual science, we have a mighty individuality who will remain together with us in the spiritual world and who is a helper of the greatest possible stature. And when one calls to mind how difficult the aspiration toward spiritual knowledge is in our time, beset as it is with materialism, it may perhaps also be said that anyone who is connected with the spiritual world with every fiber of his being places the greatest hopes on those who can be spiritual helpers who become spiritual helpers after laying aside their physical body. It does, of course, not need to be said that this crossing of the threshold of death can never be a personal decision, but that it can be brought about only through karma. These spiritual helpers are those who give us hope and consolation when we see how difficult it becomes precisely at this present time to bring our spiritual scientific movement through the many hindrances but we know that higher spiritual forces exert their influence upon the earth in order that the stream of the spiritual worlds may contribute to the physical purposes of the earth. Thus the unused forces of human souls come into the spiritual worlds so that these forces may be active there in conjunction with other forces. Thus it was that I truly called out the following words to our Fritz Mitcher from my innermost heart. Quote, Hear the entreaty of our souls, sent to you in confidence. We need here for earthly work strong power from spirit lands, which to our dead friends we owe. Then, when, in an honest way, we try to bring our spiritual movement further toward its goal, we are conscious that the forces that are available to us here on the earth are supplemented by those which our friends have already borne through the gate of death into the spiritual world. We can also gather all this together for an understanding of the general world situation. The human souls who are, because of the fateful events of the time, now passing through the gate of death, bear their etheric bodies on the one hand to the folk spirits. On the other hand, they bear everything that they have summoned up by way of sacrificial devotion in that, through the very nature of these events of the time, they have passed through the gate of death with their individuality. And all this will be poured forth as an active influence into the time that is to come. It will, in this respect, be dependent upon those people who live through the peace to form out of themselves a connection with what will, as it were, descend from above. Those who, as mothers and fathers, as brothers and sisters or relatives of some other kind, are today experiencing the decease of those dear to them on the battlefield, can receive into their consciousness the fact that with the etheric body something of immense significance for the future passes over into the general affairs of earthly humanity. Not only that they can know that individualities are strengthened and fortified for a subsequent life of greater intensity, through a sacrificial death, 
but they can also know that what the warrior who has passed through the gate of death has transmitted to the folk soul is a living reality. Moreover, it should be said that those who have crossed the threshold of death when they are young have fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers engaged with the common folk soul and with their individuality. And this idea will only have significant value when it has wholly become a feeling, so that one will know in one's feelings the dead are there, they are amongst us. When this bond will be so strong that death actually becomes an untruth also for our feeling. For when we can summon up all his forces and no longer has the hindrances of a physical body, a dead person is often able to manifest himself more truly than in his physical embodiment. Powerful streams of consolation, streams of an inner capacity to bring comfort, emanate from what spiritual science can give to souls in living consciousness and living feelings. Then, when this is experienced in this way, especially those who ally themselves with spiritual science, can look full of hope toward the future. They can experience these fateful and momentous events as something like the dawn of a time of transition, which will be followed by a sun-filled time of peace. But an important part of the spiritual potency of this sun-filled time of peace will be what has been achieved by the sacrificial death of so many. It will be made fruitful here on earth, especially if a bridge, a link is formed between the living, the souls incarnated here on earth in a physical body, and the souls that are above and want to raid down what they have received. And it is here where a real understanding of spiritual science strikes so truly a chord within our heart and calls on us to do what we are able to accomplish out of the awareness that we have gained through spiritual science, what we are able to do and feel in order that the great destiny-stirring, grief-outpouring events of the present time may, to the extent that it lies within our power, turn out to be fruitful and healing for mankind. Those who know something of spiritual science can feelingly know and knowingly feel how the bridge up to the spiritual world is created, namely, that from souls that have remained below, thoughts and feelings are sent, which can be kindled through spiritual science. The horizon for this will be an horizon of peace. The souls that will want to send down the spiritual rays of light will be above. There must be people below who have learned to send up from their souls such thoughts and feelings as are inspired by spiritual science. When there are indeed souls who with an awareness of the Spirit direct their minds into the Spirit realm, the time will then have come when, precisely through such fateful and grievous events as are taking place in our time, an intimate bond must be woven between the physical world and the spiritual world to which we aspire through our spiritual science. So, let us summarize what our understanding and our task shall be and what shall awaken our confidence in the words, quote, From the courage of the fighters, from the blood on fields of battle, from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice, there will ripen fruit of spirit, 
if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. Close quote, translated by George and Mary Adams. That is the end of Lecture 2.